You're listening to Taxpayers Australia's news and insights podcast, Tax Wrap. That is right, everyone. You're listening to Tax Wrap, episode 51 this week. We're one week away from episode 52. You're listening to Lisa, Andy and Nath. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Nathan. How are we doing? Yeah, Good we're thinking. doing all right in wet old Melbourne today. Yeah, the weather's been pretty erratic. Although I look out the window now and I see a little bit of sun, so that's nice. I'll be heading the out the door. Well, exactly, exactly for the rest of the, the race is taking place. Now, this week we're talking about something that happened this morning, so it's hot off the press. And as you can uh, imagine by now, after 50 episodes of Tax Wrap, we are quick to jump on these things when they do happen. <laughs> now, Malcolm Turnbull and uh, the Honourable Scott Morrison MP, according to this press release here, they both did speeches this morning at the Economic and Social Outlook Conference uh, entitled A National Platform for Economic Growth and Jobs. And it was held at the Grand Hyatt, which is interesting in itself. But basically, we're going to unpack what both ScoMo and Malcolm Turnbull said this morning so we can maybe read between the lines, um, see exactly what they're saying and see uh, what are the implications of, of what they're saying and hopefully we'll be uh, the first, if not the most uh, comprehensive unpacking. So let's get started. Um, I'm just going to read out some quotes and then I'm going to pass it over to Annie and Lisa and we're going to uh, unpack them together. So this first one I, I'll quote directly. It is true that we have already moved to tax the digital economy. We have made great progress and have been ahead of the curve to ensure that multinationals are paying their fair share of tax on the income they earn in Australia. So thoughts. Is this true, first of all? Is it? Well, basically, Nathan, I, I think there's, there hasn't been any laws or anything like that pass on, you know, the taxation of Uber and, you know, um, the sharing uh, economy per se. Um, we've seen a lot of activity from the tax office on the fact that you know, um, you know, uh, Uber drivers would be taxed irrespective of turnover, so they'll they'll be they're required to charge GST on their services. So it hasn't really changed from a tax viewpoint. I mean, obviously, it's something that the government and the tax office are looking at a lot more closely, and it is an emphasis by the prime minister. One of the interesting things I think about, especially Uber, now that they've considered taxi drivers, so they've got to pay GST on their first dollar of income they earn, and I think we've been chatting about it as well, Nathan, is that the tax responsibility is coming down to the Australian citizen, the Australian voter, the Australian taxpayer. Um, it's not really Uber that's getting charged their tax because they don't really have a what we call in the trade a present um, a permanent establishment here, do they, Andy? That's correct. So they're not a PTYLTD. So it's sort of like all you know, if they're catching anyone, they're catching you know people like yourself, Nathan, that yeah. could be an Uber driver. So that's an interesting sort of read between the lines on that one. Now it says here. Um They've been ahead of the curve to ensure that multinationals are paying their fair share of tax. Is that true in particular? I mean, historically, I want to say that they, they've been onto it. They've been re- reactive, but I wouldn't say they've been preemptive. Yeah, I think one of the things to note was in the most recent federal budget, the government did look at reinforcing the general anti-avoidance provisions in Part 4A. So that was how they were uh, looking at tackling, um, you know, uh, multinational tax avoidance. But obviously, you know, it's. It, needs to be done at a holistic level and so that's why when we looked at the G20 which was this time last year we did they an emphasis was to do with how to take a multinational tax avoidance and it's supposed to be done at that that higher level that more holistic level so so to say that you know they have strengthened part for a but to say that you know to be ahead of the curve it requires a much uh, much more holistic approach that's right Andy and it's it's very much that um it's it's 
every country's responsibility. You know, who's got the taxing rights for everything? And, you know, what we're really doing is saying, um, you know, should the profit be in Singapore or should the profit be in Benelux or something like that? You know, or should the profits be here? Um, and, and that's where it becomes a lot very complex as well. So if you've got... Um, a jurisdiction like Singapore or Luxembourg that doesn't, or the Netherlands that doesn't have the same sort of tax regime as us, well, you know, they push their profits there instead of here. So it's got to be at the G20 level. It's very hard to enforce, you know, global transfer pricing as we call it here, you know, when it's really could be an issue for wherever they are in the Caymans. Mm. So are there international examples of how we could do this better? Is anyone setting a good standard for trying to curb this, or is are we sort of just all feeling around in the dark, and and we need to unite on that G, you know that that multinational level to really combat it? I mean, one of the things that they're trying to do is have information sharing agreements between uh, countries, so that you know that that information does get picked up, so that you can isolate you know that income, for mm. example. But um, it is a very difficult situation. You know, you need all parties to come to the table. Um, it seems like the table's the the metaphor these days, on or off the table. So, <laughs> so, um, so basically, yeah, it's to do with all parties coming to the table and, and working out a, a solution. I think. It- it's probably a good thing. A good place to start is if you up the transparency, then then things tend to get a little bit better when things become more transparent. And naturally, that's the way that the world is going. I mean, they're not going to be able to hide forever anyone who's doing the wrong thing. Hopefully, anyway. I mean, that's the way that I see it going, but we'll see how we go. Next quote, income tax has become too often out of sight and therefore too often out of mind in comparison to the GST, yet the tax you are paying is just as real and a lot higher. Yeah, that's exactly right, Nathan. It's quite interesting. Um, I think that Scott Morrison mentioned it as the silent tax. Mm. So he's thinking. I think he's talking about you know if you go to the supermarket, there's a little asterisk on all the things that you pay your GST on, right? And it says this is how much GST you've paid because in 2000 when it came in, that's what the requirement was. You mm. had to basically isolate it as a tax invoice. Where you know the the income tax that you pay, um, as he said, you don't go to the ATM and it comes out and says you know here's your Here's your hundred dollars, and you know you've had forty six cents or forty forty six dollars taken out of it. So it's quite an interesting thing. But I think what he's really highlighting here is that most of the countries um, that we know and love, so to speak, have a ho- much higher um, re- revenue requirement from a goods and services or a VAT tax compared to an income tax. Where ours is flipped over. You know, we rely on you and I and and Andy basically paying our income tax to generate at least half the revenue that the government gets to spend, where most most other countries that's flipped around. And I think that's what he's really trying to highlight there. That's correct. I would prefer to leave them how they choose to spend, save and invest their own money in a way that best suits them and their families. Now, that's pretty... Uh, I mean, it's it's a bit vague, I want to say. I mean, is there any... Is he hinting at a, a, a broader plan for investment and things like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think it's more to do with, I mean, it's, it is the Treasurer's catchphrase. Um, his three-word his three, slogan. Three, his three-word slogan. Oh, but the I, spend, save and invest. It's quite a nice <laughs> soundbite, actually, yeah. <laughs> it works but, well. But I think one of the things there is, what, what he's trying to get at there is that if you knew, if your income tax was lower, um, then you would make, you know, that how you spend your money would be at your discretion. So whether you wanted to purchase, you know, additional goods, you know, then you will have to pay the GST. So because after all, GST is a consumption tax and the choice as to whether you pay that tax or not is really when you go to the shops and 
whether you want to pay for that particular item, uh, particularly for larger discretionary spends. We're not talking about sort of um, food and health and education that's um, generally uh, exempt for GST purposes. So we're talking about non-essentials. That's correct. Deciding to buy that TV or that coffee machine or, you know. It's interesting that you also use the word um, save. So I think Mm. that's sort of coming down to our superannuation and that's definitely on the tax reform table, which is everything. I think it's starting to, the table's starting to have a little bit more meat on it at the moment, but um, I think that that's sort of where he's coming from. And just incentivising people to work, I think that's that's the other thing. Yeah. Mm. Now, this next one is quite interesting, particularly to me because I am an average taxpayer. The costs of navigating the tax system for an average taxpayer have grown by about seven, 73% since 1995. Now, if we, if we talk about navigating the tax system as okay, I have to fill out a tax return, do I go to a tax agent? Um, if I'm running a small business, do I use an accountant? Things like that, just to, to get through the tax system in a in a basic way to make sure you're compliant. That's how I interpret what he's saying. How on earth have they grown by 73%? Is it is the tax system become harder or has the move to digital sort of clouded things? And Well, Nathan, um, I know that you're getting very good at tax, and so I'll say this. Um, in 1995, we only had one income tax act called the 1936 Act. Okay. In 1997, yep. they decided we had the next one. See, you're on the ball. IT, <laughs> ITAA 97. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that could be part of it that we've actually tried to – look, there's a project to basically simplify it, so all the 36 mm. was meant to throw it, you know, fall into the 97. But – it didn't happen that way. So now, you know, every time, as we know, when we reference things, it's, you know, the 36 or the 97 Act, we're going to tell you where it's come from. I mean, and one of the other things, Nathan, is to do with, you know, um, I mean, there's additional costs, of course, because it's more complex, but does digital, um, you know, being able to push one button and to lodge a tax return, as I did over the weekend. Um, Good through, boy. Through, <laughs> through e-tax and, and my tax. The question becomes, would that cost reduce as a result of us, you know, being able to to look at a return, say, okay, it looks about right to me with all the pre-fills and just press the button. So whether that's a true statement or not, I'm not entirely sure. The laws are definitely more complex in the sense that if you do, if you are transacting or if you are in business, they are more complex laws. But for the man on the street, whether it's more expensive, it's, you know, it is a, it is a bit of a question mark with that particular statement. But it is deductible as well, it Andy, is, though. It <laughs> is. Well, that is a thing. I just, I, 73%, that seems like an astronomical number, considering, as you said, I mean, my, my tax affairs are more or less just a, a you know, like pre-filled and you just, yeah. you're good to go. And then... I mean, and I, I don't think I paid a cent to a tax agent this year. I mean, I, I, I benefit from knowing yeah a few <laughs> tax agents, which is great. But we didn't in terms charge of any money, <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like, like I just don't understand. We're this. We're in an age of digital disruption, particularly in the accounting space. How does this happen? I, I mean, surely not. We'll see how it goes. And I, I think too, as well as you said, the. the Income Tax Act 97 simplified things and there hadn't really, for average taxpayers, having to deal with different tax rulings and stuff and depending on their tax affairs, there aren't really many things that have occurred between 1995 and now that would complicate it. You know what I mean? Like CGT and FBT were before that. Good That's boy. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so look at me. Yeah. Wow. It's tax been a year. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like if you had to deal with, I mean, FBT sort of out of it, but CG, mm. oh no, sorry. Oh, it kind of is. But <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like CGT is, is it's, it's something that was before that. So that's something if we were going to say well it's growing 73% from you know 19 whatever it was mm. 
1980 odd, I want to say, then yeah. yes, I would, I would, I would understand that. You know, so well, it's it, interesting. It could, it's look, Nathan, I reckon it could be a perception thing as well. That I remember going to an ATO working group where they pulled people off the street, so to speak, to talk to them about it. And a lot of people are just scared about the big bad tax office monster. Mm. And you know, if they can hide behind someone called a tax agent, they feel like they've got some comfort about it. Yeah. So it yeah. could be just that. And remember, this isn't just you know, the cost of a tax agent reading between the lines. It could be anything to do with that compliance process. You know, having a bookkeeper keep keep records, mm. us keeping our own records, all that could be the time-consuming things that happen. Like we say, how long did it take you to fill in this form? I don't know if they've still yeah. got that. They used to have it. Yeah. And you used to put 10 minutes, one hour, or sometimes they used to put eight hours just to pad my timesheet <laughs> out. But, you know, just to, just to create, you know, some mm. outlier in their stats. But, yeah, we don't really know where that's coming from. We don't know what base it's come from either. So let's, let's have a watching brief on that one going forward. Yeah, I think so. Okay, let's move on to Malcolm Turnbull now. Um, now there's quite a long passage here. What I will do is I'll read it in its entirety just so we don't – we're making sure that we're not quoting him out of context and yes. stuff because people can sometimes fuss about that, which is fair enough. I'll jump straight in. Uh, let me say a little bit about tax. It is much in the news, but the Treasurer will be speaking later. The object of the taxation system is plainly to raise the revenue the government needs for its services it provides. But it must do so in a manner that backs Australians to work, save and invest, that backs them in rather than holds them back. That has, in the language of the Melbourne Institute, the minimum deadweight loss – the minimum handbrake on economic activity. Now, of course, any set of tax reforms must be fair, which is why picking off one of the by now very venerable reform proposals, I'm waiting to see one that hasn't been around for a decade or so. We need a new idea here. I'm looking at Chris Richardson in particular. Surely there must be one. <laughs> They've been kicking around for a while and there is no harm in that. That is why picking off one of these by now venerable proposals in isolation to others is always going to be misleading. I think you understand the point I'm making there. A reform package must, at the very least, raise the revenue we need, share the burden fairly across the community, and do so in a way that incentivises employment, investment, and innovation. Fairness, I repeat, is absolutely critical. Any package of reforms which is not and is not seen as fair will not and cannot achieve the public support, without which it will simply not succeed. So a lot of things that we sort of did already know, but some interesting thoughts in there as well. I mean, what, what stands out for you guys as an interesting... Yeah, I, I think one of the things, Nath, is everything's back on the table. I think that's probably the one thing to note. And I think what the Prime Minister is alluding to, and you put it very eloquently uh, in your Prime Ministerial voice. I tried. There were a few sentences in there that went, <laughs> <laughs> So I think one of the things he's trying to do is he's trying to say reform is not purely GST. I mm -hmm. think that's the first thing to note. And that there are other aspects that he's alluded to so whether it's super concessions um, we haven't heard about negative gearing and we've heard from Kelly O'Dwyer more recently that um, you know she's suggested for example that um, that you know even you know nurses and teachers do negatively gear so potentially that's off the table so to speak but I think what he's trying to allude to is is basically that with any sort of reform it's a whole package of of things um, not one thing in isolation. Yeah, mm. I, think, I think that what he's looking at as well is that, yeah, it's not a Band-Aid fix. It's just not a quick quick budget win. I think that um, the way that the Turnbull government's selected its ministers, the way that um, they're building momentum and the, just, let's say, the polls at the moment, I think he's going to go to the election with a mandate for true tax reform is what I'm hearing. Um, and I think that that's where there will be a lot of discussion and I think 
we've got to really look at the state taxes as well. And then that comes down to whether they're going to look at federalism and the federalism white paper. Do we have too many levels of government and who looks after what? So that's what I think it comes down to. But I think what's refreshing, as Andy said, it's not just up the GSD to save revenue because it's then not going to be fair for all. And, and that's a very good point that Lisa's made as well because uh, Scott Morrison did talk about the, you know, the state taxes and they contribute about $80 billion, mm. um, in terms of their take. So the question is, is because you've got to remember that the GST is also also goes to the states to, to fund you know hospitals and schools, etc. So in terms of that total tax take, what the states get, you know, that is GST plus, you know, state revenue, the question becomes, is that the right balance? You know, should they get more GST, but in turn, um, you know, rationalise or harmonise or uh, reform state taxes as part of that that total package? And that could include such things as land, land tax and, and stamp duty. We do hear and about... And payroll taxes as well. We do hear about stamp duty being a, an impediment to, to people changing homes, uh, particularly, you know, um, uh, senior Australians. So so there are those sorts of things that, you know, you, you need to con- consider as part of the, the whole tax reform package. And I think that's what makes it complex as well, um, yeah. Andy, that they do have to negotiate with the various state treasurers and all those aren't batting on the uh, Liberal team. So there's a lot of negotiations so we'll see how it all goes. I think there's a they need the master negotiator to come in. Just before we we've got some um some facts and stats, which is always good too. It's nice when we have that on tax wrap just to to back up a little bit what we're saying to make sure we're saying the right things. Just before we move on to that though, something that concerns me a little bit on the complexity note. Maybe you guys can unpack it for me. I don't know if there is an answer, but as an everyday taxpayer, this is a question that I often have. Uh, he says a reform package must, at the very least. A, raise the revenue we need, B, share the burden fairly across the community, and C, do so in a way that incentivises employment, investment, and innovation. Now, if I look at that in its entirety, I think something's got to give. You, How can you structure a reform package so that all three of those things are satisfied and what will give? What, what fails? I mean, historically... When people, I mean, because it just sounds utopian, right? We, yeah, of course, exactly. we want all those three things to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How could it happen, and what is what always it's, gets sacrificed? It's a subjective yeah. thing, I'll say, of fear. I, I have to say, it's the the golden triangle of of what they're trying to achieve, and that's why you know um, tax reform is always a, a continuous debate. You know, one government after the, the other, they're continuously continuously striving to to um, satisfy that to, or, or meet the those uh, three points in the triangle. Mm. Yeah, and I just really think it's fairness because it's so subjective. What's mm. fair for you and what's fair mm. for me will be to- two mm. totally different mm. things. No? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and that's what the difficulty is. I mean, there's a there's a saying that I can't remember who said it now, but it's, it's ta- taxes what we pay for a civilised society. Yeah. I think it was Ben... Was it Ben Franklin? It sounds about right. I could be wrong, so sorry, listeners. But that's sort of what it is. It's you know, it's it's the redistribution of wealth. It's all those sort of things, and that's what we want to see. We want to look after everyone. I mean, that's I, what we're trying to do. I think the electorate would be pleased if it hurts them the least. I think that's probably the one way to look at it. Or if you, if governments uh, introduce policy that hurts the least number of uh, taxpayers out there, I think they're doing the right thing on that. If, if people perceive that to be fair to them. Mm. Yeah, so I remember hearing um, Kerry Packer, I think, at some some Senate inquiry basically saying, you're not doing a good enough job with the money for me to give you any more tax money. So for him, he only wanted to pay the minimum <laughs> amount that he wanted to. So mm. that's what was fair for him. 
I guess that makes sense. Now, ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services, uh, commissioned some modelling with NATSIM, which is the National Centre for Social and Economic Modelling, and the report's called The Distributional Impact of the GST. And that gives us a little bit of uh, context and, and statistics to, to sort of explain, well, let, let's look at what happens if we broaden the GST base or if we look at changing the GST. I mean, what, what are the potential things that could happen. Yeah, I think what they were trying to get at in that report was basically if you were to increase the GST to 15%, which is what we've been hearing a lot mm-hmm. late, uh, recently, but we also reduce uh, the tax rates at each uh, margin down by 5%. Um, the taxes will still hurt low-income owners. Essentially, mm-hmm. that's the, the message to, to take home. Um, um, one, one thing I will probably say about the, the modelling is that it is a very simplistic model how they've approached it um, and it is only one model so um, it does highlight though the regressiveness of the GST uh, in that regard so so the stats and the modelling's correct on that that front um, safe to say but I think what we do need is a number of different models so we can explore those various options for example is it better to increase the low income threshold for example you know uh, do we play around at the margins um, what are some of the ways that we can uh, play around with the tax rate so that there is a bit more fairness and equity? Is, is this approach, is this model a, a fair and reasonable model for, for most taxpayers? So that, that, that's one thing to, to look at. Um, the other thing to also is to look at, you know, the source of the data, you know, is, it, uh, is the data fair, uh, is the data uh, recent data or is it, uh, is it data that we can rely on? Yeah, thanks, Andy. So um, it's quite interesting where the data actually came from. It's ABS household statistics from 2009-10, Nathan. Okay. So I'm thinking that was a fair time ago. Yeah. And as Mr Turnmill talks about disruptive technologies and how things have changed in his speech, I think the world's changed a lot in those years. Absolutely, yeah. And it looks like the assumptions that they've made was just add CPI to it. Okay. So, And I'm just thinking, the mix of my household spend, has that changed over that time? Yeah. And that's not really taking into account that. Yeah, one of the things I was reading recently was they were saying that there's, you know, sort of with the advent of MasterChef, there's a lot more foodies out there and they're probably going out to eat a lot. So they pay more GST when they go out to eat. So as Lisa pointed out, and that's one example, but as Lisa pointed out, has that mix since 2009-10 changed based on, based on that data? Yeah, so it's always the devil in the detail with statistics yeah. and things like that, isn't yeah. it, Andy? And so I was quite keen because um, Cassandra Goldie from ACOS was on the news a lot last night. I'm going, I wonder what this data's like. So it came into our inbox today, so I had a bit of a, a trawl through it to see, uh, you know, how interesting it was. One thing that I'd note, which was, I mean, I think education is fundamental for a civilised society and for us to be innovative and everything like that. And that was one of the things where it wasn't going to be a regressive tax if we had a GST to education. Um, so that's one thing that I thought that was quite interesting in this modelling data, because I would say, you know, education should be untouched because that's, you know, going to fit with the innovation framework for, for Mr Turnbull. And that's why the debate, Nathan, particularly around the GST, is so complex. You know, you have different parties, you have uh, different interest groups, you know, putting their case forward so you know and the challenge for us even at taxpayers and the challenge even bigger for the governments to to, you know to look at that information and go hang on a sec you know what's what's the right information and and do our reforms adequate properly reflect what we're trying to do absolutely well that pretty much covers up everything that we wanted to talk about this morning um it'll be interesting to see um well leading up until the election how this changes and how um you know the liberal governments uh, tax reform package takes shape 
it sounds like they're putting a lot of thought into it, but we'll see uh, when the spin sort of comes down a little bit. We'll see what we're actually dealing with. So uh, thanks for joining us on Tax Wrap episode 51. Join us next week for the big 52 Fiesta. We haven't worked out exactly what we're going to do, but it's going to be a, a show with a bang. So tune in for that one. And thanks for joining us. See ya. Thanks. <laughs>